Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 13th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about Draymond Green's suspension for Game 5 of the NBA Finals for repeated low blows. We'll also talk about the ethics of trash talk and Green's teammates' contention that LeBron James just got his feelings hurt. We'll discuss the U.S. men's soccer team's victorious jaunt through group play at the Copa America Centenario and Brazil's ignominious exit from the tournament. And we'll be joined by Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star to assess the Pittsburgh Penguins' Stanley Cup win, Sidney Crosby's coronation as playoff MVP, and the death of Gordie Howe, a.k.a. Mr. Hockey. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Mr. Scrabble, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. You are not yet Mr. Kicker. You're working your way up there. I'm Mr. 29 down is what I am. Congratulations on Saturday. Is Saturday puzzle like being in the New York Times? And and it was your name that was in there. It wasn't yeah. just that your name. Your name was actually written in pencil slash pen by bil- or, billions of people across typed, the world. Or typed into their computers. That's big. I know. I mean, Word Freak had been in there a couple times. I was the acrostic after the book came out. That probably was the highlight of my life. But the name, the name. Pesca, come on. You got some catching up to do here. Well, I mean, I don't want to brag, but most Sudokus are my social security number. <laughs> I don't. 
I don't like to put that out there for security reasons, but you know, I've been pretty influential in the uh, newspaper 20 minutes to spare game myself. And I feel like there are coded messages being sent to me in the family circus cartoons mm-hmm, yeah, that are commanding me to undergo various acts. Mike, you were the role model for the, the, the boy and Nancy, weren't you? I was Sluggo. Sluggo. Yeah, yeah, I have some Sluggo about me. Yes. And Jeffy from Family Circus. Yes. <laughs> That's Mike Pasco, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. That's a, that's a good amount of banter. In our uh, bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to evaluate and perhaps lightly mock the latest version of Steph Curry's sneakers. Joining us to do that will be DJ author and sneakerhead Bubito Garcia. You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. You can just kind of dabble in the in the sneaker bonus see if you like it get it at slate.com slash hang up plus as rashid wallace almost said but didn't quite say due to pluralization balls don't lie when draymond green need the thunder stephen adams and the balls in game two of the western Conference finals you might have said hey these things happen when green kicked adams in the balls in game three of the western Conference finals you might have said hey These things happen multiple times involving the same players in two consecutive games. But when Green swatted LeBron James in the testicles in game four of the NBA finals in what the NBA later termed a retaliatory swipe of his hand to the groin, we got into a fool me thrice, shame on me, and also my balls hurt situation. The NBA's crotch scene investigators suspended Green for Monday's game five of the finals due to an accumulation of flagrant foul points. And he won't even be allowed into the arena as the Warriors, who are up three games to one on the Cavaliers, try to close out the series at home. Mike Pasca, I feel like we've devoted a large portion of our podcast in recent weeks to the assessment of Draymond Green's crotch adjacent behavior. Mm -hmm. What did you make of this uh, suspension? Draymond brings the crotch game. You got to admit it. I like your idea for the spinoff series, CSI. Oakland with the C being crotch, <laughs> crotch scene investigation. Um, I think that it is seen as less than dire because of the series, because uh, the Warriors are up 3-1, and except for that one blip, didn't seem vulnerable. So uh, while Warrior diehards are saying this is, this is horrendous, it doesn't seem like the end of the world. And in a way, get it out of the game now. What if he has some more, what if uh, in a game five, he a close game five, He'd have some more crotch antics, and then he'd be suspended for a six or a seven. Or what about, you know, what if it was in a game six, when the uh, all-important home crotch advantage would not have <laughs> mm-hmm. been conferred upon mm-hmm. Draymond Green? Do his crotch that, points, like, go, do his crotch points he, go down to zero after the suspension? Does he have to, have to start reaccumulating Yeah, get it, clear the table. Points? That's right. Crotchula rasa after this. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, looking at what he did... Yeah, that seems to be, if you have those rules in place, he's a guy who deserves to be suspended upon enforcement of said rules. I didn't know that there were cumulative flagrant points in the NBA. This was news to me. Kiki Vandeweghe, vice president of basketball operations, said that while his actions in game four do not merit a suspension as a standalone act, the number of flagrant points he has earned triggers a suspension for game five. This is kind of like accumulated yellow cards in soccer. So we punish cumulatively. I'm not sure I am agreeing with this. 
I think yeah, if you're going to be suspended, it's got to be something that really merits suspension. And this looked pretty fuzzy to me. I mean, there was <laughs> this was retaliation, and the retaliator always gets nailed, especially when he punches you in the balls. So if you LeBron if you, was instigating, if you punch Stefan in the balls three times, you're good. But if you if you do it a fourth time, he's like, I'm sensing a pattern here. It's, this is getting a little shame less fuzzy. Shame on you. Shame <laughs> on you. <laughs> so Charles Barkley oh, this is great. said after that game and then reiterated it later, he praised Draymond Green saying you could have played in our day because when a guy steps over you, you have a moral <laughs> obligation to punch him. I love this, the moral obligation part that this is the, the church of uh, step over grind punching. And the really fascinating thing here for me is the Tyron Lue play where Allen Iverson stepped over him in the finals back when AI was on the Sixers and Lue was on the Lakers. That to me has become this kind of like great exalted play recently and just gets talked about a lot and people show that like Iverson disdainfully stepping over him. And now you have the second example of LeBron stepping over Draymond Green. When did stepping over someone become just this like amazing act of, I don't know if it's defiance or like disrespect. Like it used to be if like jumping over Frederick Weiss and like, you know. uh, Getting your balls in his face. Well, if your balls are in someone's (laughs) face at seven feet off the ground, then it's okay. If the balls are in the face when a player is lying on the ground, not okay. I think we can establish that. As a, as a guiding mm. principle. Maybe there should be a minimum balls-to-face distance mm-hmm. enforced by calipers, <laughs> which can be superimposed like the yellow first down line. <laughs> Do you think that LeBron James did this on purpose because he knows that, like Yogi Bear and Picnic Baskets, Draymond Green just can't resist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Picnic Basket. Can we talk for a second? I know the Warriors are the most cuddly, lovable, wonderful team just by their actual actions, it's not true. Like, let's say they were their personalities, but their shots didn't go in nearly <laughs> as often. They'd be a bunch of jerks, right? They'd be a bunch of bad shooting jerks who shoot from too far away. Well, I love that Charles Barkley is like, man, this Warriors, I really hate this Warriors team because they're so great at shooting. But the one thing I love about him is this one guy who just hits everyone in the balls all the time. That's, <laughs> that's what makes this team so fun. And I think you can, really, you can really take it to the bank when you know you're on the right side of Charles Barkley's moral compass. Yeah. Charles yeah. Barkley's moral compass is pointing in your direction. You are his, just. His moral compass points true crotch. <laughs> Well, I think it's more his sense of aesthetics, actually, to be fair. <laughs> so LeBron James only shot four free throws in game four, was very upset that he didn't get more foul calls. His coach, Taron Liu, was very upset and got fined $25,000. If he had punched the ref in the crotch, maybe it would have been even $50,000. Who's to say how that would have played with the flagrant points? But it does seem like the refereeing has been inconsistent in this uh, series. In game four... They quote unquote let them play to a pretty absurd degree, I thought. What did you make of the calls or lack thereof, Mike? Okay, I sometimes wonder about it. Yeah, there were a lack thereof, and it did seem um, pretty vicious. And of course, it's impossible to look at a playoff series and not say, well, this is a playoff-inspired decision, um, and let them play is the decision that referees make. 
And I know there's a thing as calling it tight or calling it loose, but isn't it, I mean, it just seems to me that if you go for the relative looseness, if you go, I mean, if you, and, and how is it determined? Do the refs talk about it beforehand? But let's say, whatever, you let two calls go that were borderline calls early, ergo, this game's going to be a somewhat loose-called game. Um, because it's a playoff game, don't we all say, don't we kind of confer upon the status of a playoff game that it was the referees letting it go and this is playoff basketball? I don't know. It seems to me that the, there are just a few tipping points throughout the game. And then based on where we are in the playoffs, we say this was a game that they let go. That said, in that individual game, yeah, it did seem like, uh, there were a lot of penalties that could have been penalties that weren't called and that would be called in other games. I'm just saying that throughout the 82 games of the regular season, you probably see 30 of those. Uh, the discrepancy between how many free throws the Cavalier shot and the Warrior shot was not huge. The Warriors also drove to the basket. The Warriors also got knocked to the ground. I think this is part of the, the basketball mind play. LeBron James is very good at that. Basketball mind play. He has not been shooting as many free throws no. this postseason as he has in, in the past. And He averaged six and a half. Per game in the regular season, he's averaging 5.4 per game in the postseason. And it's not just like all in his head. He was really seriously driving to the basket repeatedly on plays, whether the calls were right or wrong, on plays that in the past, in my anecdotal experience, that these things are called fouls. And he, that's, should be, he should be smaller and weaker. <laughs> well, that's part of his strategy and it's one that makes sense when you're getting rewarded for driving to the basket because usually when LeBron James goes to the basket like one of four things happen and three of those things are good or maybe even one of uh, five things he either makes the shot he gets fouled he misses and his team gets an offensive rebound he finds a teammate that's open on the perimeter or he just misses and the other team gets a rebound that's like a pretty good ratio of like success to failure um, and that ratio has been totally skewed by the fact that the fouls that he had been getting, he has not been getting as much. And if his jumper is not as good, that means the Cavs aren't going to win. You also forgot another possibility. He gets punched in the balls. <laughs> Draymond Green gets <laughs> mm-hmm. suspended. That's always out there. That is always out there. I had not uh, considered that. And so we we forgot to mention this earlier. Draymond Green uh, reportedly called LeBron a bitch around the whole uh, ball hitting incident. LeBron was very upset by that. And Clay Thompson said, you know, LeBron got his feelings hurt. And what did Maurice Spates tweeted a, a baby bottle emoji? <laughs> he did. I must say that calling someone a bitch on a basketball court, that seems like totally fair play to me. Kevin Garnett like called people uh, bitches when he was in first grade. This is playoff basketball. I, I don't mean to sound like a uh, reactionary, but, uh, yeah, but. Call it, calling someone a bitch is, doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Yeah. Well, Alexander Hamilton got shot over it. But yes, this is 2016. <laughs> if he had called him the son of a motherless cur, then maybe <laughs> I'd have taken notice. But there's no emoji for that. Uh, Steve Kerr, son of a motherless Steve Kerr. Stefan, what do you think? Are we teaching our children that uh, calling people bitches is okay? Is that didn't Draymond Green? Are you, are you upset in, by didn't this? Draymond Green appear in, in NBA PSAs supporting moms and treating women with respect. That seems that uh, sure. Okay then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is. You don't care. I don't really care that much. You don't care. No, you didn't enjoy tweet the the baby bottle. Emoji I did like then. the baby bottle emoji tweet. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't all of this just uh, absolve Kevin Love from not being very good? 
How do you mean? Well, doesn't all this discussion take the focus away from the fact that Kyrie Irving had a total of one good game this series? Mm -hmm. How many? Oh assists? yeah, good point. How many assists has Kyrie Irving had in this series? He had eight in Is game three. Yet? He had eight in game three, and when they he had won, four or less in the three losses. Yeah, that can't be good for the Cavaliers. He uh, he likes to shoot. The man likes to shoot. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Team USA did not get off to the most inspiring start in the Copa America Centenario, the tournament in which teams from South America have joined their North and Central American brethren here in these United States. In their first of three group stage games, the U.S. lost 2-0 against the world's number three team, Colombia, looking a bit sprightly at times, but getting undone by poor defending on a set piece and a handball in the box that led to a James Rodriguez penalty kick. In game two, though, they drilled their CONCACAF rival Costa Rica and needing a win or a draw to advance to the knockout stage, they beat Paraguay 1-0, holding on to that one-goal lead despite playing a man down for almost the entire second half. Coach Jurgen Klinsmann, who in Klinsmann-esque fashion acted like a giant dickhole in the run-up to the tournament, doing an interview with the Wall Street Journal in which he blamed his players for failing to live up to their potential and calling out several young players by name, did something not very Klinsmann-ish once the game started, penciling in the same lineup for three straight contests. The team seemed to get better as the games went along, probably because they stopped playing Colombia, but they now have a great opportunity to advance in this tournament. They play Ecuador on Thursday in the quarterfinal, Stefan, and they've already beaten Ecuador. They did that in a pre-tournament mm -hmm. friendly a couple weeks ago. So what do you make of uh, this performance so far? Well, the run-up to this tournament has been marked for the level of vitriol directed at this team and this belief that we have backslid, that there's been no progress, that we are playing the same sort of bland American-style soccer that, that belied all the promises Klinsman made when he arrived to install a more vigorous, energetic game, relying on ball movement and aggressiveness, and that we would be the aggressors and America would no longer sort of sit back and rely on its physicality. Um, they've played really well in this tournament, and that could just be a function of, like you said, putting the same 11 players out there, allowing them some opportunities to play together. And these are 11 very good soccer players. I mean, this, this sort of the, the big picture argument about are we among the best teams in the world is a stupid one that will happen again as this tournament progresses, whether the U.S. is knocked out by Ecuador or makes it to the semifinals and has to play Argentina. But the point, the narrower point is you see progress here. You see some players that have improved a lot Klinsman, though, continues, as you said, to be a jerk. Do we even know who the best teams in soccer, football are in the world? As I look at the FIFA rankings, you mentioned Colombia, the third best team. Really? I mean, you know, they're above Germany. And then fifth is Chile or Chile. Ecuador, who the United States played and you dismissed with, not dismissed, but you said, you know, the United States has already beat them in a friendly. United States is ranked in the 30s. Ecuador is apparently 13th. So I don't even understand what 
okay, maybe this is just a function of the FIFA rankings being weird. But in tournaments mm-hmm. like this and the UEFA tournament <laughs> and all the tournaments going on in the world, I'm just surprised at who's a good team and who's not. And it's quite possible that the United States are either a lot better or a lot worse than we expected. Because, you know, what is a national team? They come together so infrequently. <laughs> You're asking these uh, very fascinating philosophical questions. Yeah, the FIFA rankings are notoriously terrible. Um, But I would say that the performance, the relative performance in these three games was largely a function of the competition. Mm -hmm. Not surprising that they were outclassed by Colombia in the first game. And they didn't play that badly against Colombia in that first game. And when... The U.S. plays Paraguay and Costa Rica at home. They should win. There's an enormous home field, home country advantage in soccer. And this is a massive opportunity for this national team to play what's considered to be a very important tournament in its home country. It's the first time that that's happened. I'm not counting gold cups. Uh, This is the first time it's happened since the 1994 World Cup, right, Stefan? Yeah. And... The fact that this team gets the opportunity to play not in friendlies, not in CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers, like world-class competition in meaningful games at home is a great chance for them to do well in a tournament. And it's good that they have. I mean, I don't mean to minimize the accomplishment because, and we can talk about the Brazil game, if just one tiny thing had gone wrong if John Brooks hadn't made that save on the three-on-one against uh, Paraguay. If one other play in that game, you know, had gone differently, then this would be a massive disappointment. They wouldn't be advancing. And, you know, it's just a weird sport in that the very, very smallest things matter in individual games. And there are so few actual games that right. matter. And so it's even more magnified. Right. And I think the, the larger point that you that you sort of hint at is that so much import is placed on these few games involving a rotating cast of players. And it becomes a referendum on the state of the sport in the country. And Klinsman, to his discredit, doesn't do anything to minimize that. He comes out in this Wall Street Journal interview before the Copa America, he came out and kept saying the same sort of bullshit that he's been saying for four or five years now, that Americans don't know how to be hungry and that they go overseas and they get a job with a a first division or second division team and they're satisfied and they don't work hard enough and they're complacent. This is is moronic. Well, he's so unlikable and I love the national team and I watch – every game and and really want them to succeed. There's almost like some part of me that wants them to lose just to make him look bad. Just to get him fired. Not not even to get him fired, but just because the stuff that he's saying is so moronic about how they don't win just because they don't have heart. And just to suggest that any player who is able to achieve and succeed at the level that these national team players have to suggest that they're like missing kind of guts. And that's the reason that this team hasn't gotten over the top when there are so many more structural reasons why American soccer isn't, you know, one and of the best teams in the world. And he's right about some of those structural reasons, about the way kids grow up playing soccer and the suburbanization of the sport. But to go and call out three of the best young players who are playing in Europe, Matt Miazga 
and Emerson Hinman and Gideon Zalalem, which he did in this Wall Street Journal interview with Matthew Futterman, I, I don't understand the psychology of that. I mean, what's he trying to do? Motivate Yeah, them? it seems to me that Klinsman is acting like he's coaching a different type of team, either the fat and complacent and well-paid club team who needs to be shaken up, or, you know, he just kind of projects himself like he's now the coach the much laureled coach of the Mannschaft uh the German team and he knows the German public expects greatness from the team and if there's anything less they kind of want the coach to call out their players like that is a dynamic where you know the coach can get on the side of the populace by saying that these players have been underperforming and realizing it but it just seems so ill-suited to where U.S. soccer is it also seems ill-suited to the actual truth of especially these young players who should be nurtured like he just has no nurture about him or at least in his public comments and i think that the united states is an adolescent soccer culture that does need a little nurturing so let's talk briefly about the brazil peru game and brazil did not take this tournament particularly seriously but it feels like in retrospect maybe they're regretting that decision or maybe they just weren't very good um neymar did not play his club team barcelona said essentially you can play in the Olympics or in Copa America, not both. They chose the Olympics. They've never won a gold medal. The Olympics are in Rio. It was the natural pick. But Mm -hmm. they looked desultory. They looked very poor in this tournament. They only scored against Haiti. And then in the 75th minute of this game against Peru. They did score seven times against Haiti. They only scored against Haiti. (laughs) They only scored seven times against Haiti. (laughs) And then in this game against Peru, they lose 1-0, 1-0 on a goal where the guy just batted the ball into into the net. Obvious obvious handball. Hard to blame the ref. None and you they and again, this strikes me as strange. I have like completely done a 180 on replay where I used to be all in favor of it and now I hate mm. it. But in soccer, it seems like okay, again, very few games are played that matter at all. Like we're determining the fates of these of these national teams and these games that you know, that people really care about based on like one or two actions per game. And we're relying on a single referee who does not have the benefit of having any kind of replay on a handball. And in Copa America, there are not additional referees on the goal line as there are in in the European Championship. You do have your sideline. But in the European Championship, they have additional referees right by the goal to assess, um, you know, whether there's a handball or whether there's any other chicanery in the box. It just seems like you're inviting this sort of outcome and you're inviting the kinds of behaviors that annoy fans by pl- because cheating is so heavily incentivized and so lightly punished. Yes, but we said that all with the sports now that we hate instant replay and But you're right. I mean, there's one goal a game in this particular soccer game. Why not look at it? And everyone saw on the first replay, oh, yeah, that was an illegal goal. Why not just review every goal? Would that be so wrong? Peru, by the way. Well, they have the goal line technology now to review whether it goes over the line. And so at that point. over the line, but not punched in. Right. At that point, you're like, why don't you just check if it's punched in? And in basketball, I think it's totally philosophically consistent to say this is a seven-game series you score like more than a hundred points every game. Yeah. We don't need to review every like last little thing. It maybe it won't even out, but you certainly have a lot of chances to redeem yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I hated him. I hated in baseball I mean, with every slide where I'm fine with if the ball beats the man in just every slide. And yes, so now that we could look at it to a fairly well, but it's different. We're talking about a slide, a slide safe at second, you know, and baseball is a static sport and, and plays, you know, there are 30 plays a game that can influence baseball. We're just talking about the goals in soccer. That doesn't seem unreasonable. Just the goals. Right. And, and the, the fear among soccer purists is that there'll be trickled down. Is the word purist to... ever used in a non-pejorative sense? No. <laughs> is that it'll trickle down to was a penalty committed, was a foul committed, um, should we start reviewing that? But I think, I think for goals, yes. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, last night- well, isn't there an equivalent so, in hockey where you can look and see whether somebody kicked the-, the Yeah, puck hockey's puck gotten yeah. a little crazy yeah. too with all the coaches' challenges, and that was one of the good thing about the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Hockey has gotten a little crazy, but a hockey game is a 4-3 game, you know? Soccer's 1-0. You know, nil means nothing. Or 2-1. 7-0 yeah. if Haiti's involved. <laughs> Seven to nothing if Haiti or the San Jose Sharks are involved. Haiti no, that's not, goal. That's not true. The Sharks Haiti are good. Haiti scored a goal. But the weird thing was that in the Brazil-Peru game, the refs still got together for three minutes and were cupping their mouths and talking into their microphones. Um, not that they could look at video to see what had happened. So it was, it was really, it was weird. So in those three minutes, it would have taken 30 seconds to look at the, the video from three angles. And determine that yes, Refer soccer referee behaves punched in yeah. goal. Soccer referee behaves strangely. With, I got to say it was a, it was an excellent punch into the goal though. It was. I would just like to note in the FIFA rankings, Peru forty six, one above Cape Verde Islands, one below Albania. I'm giving myself the last word here to note that by far the strangest thing in soccer, maybe any sport, is the fact that the refs use scotch tape to attach the microphone to their face. <laughs> You'd think that they would have better uh, technology Could for be that. medical tape. Are you sure it's scotch? It's some form of clear tape. You'd think we would have figured this out by now. Yeah, like a body mic in a Broadway right. play coming out of the guy's hair. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. On Sunday night in San Jose, the Pittsburgh Penguins beat the Sharks to win the Stanley Cup. It's the second championship of Penguins star Sidney Crosby's career, and those two Stanley Cups now join Crosby's two MVP awards and two Olympic gold medals, allowing for the kind of symmetrical trophy case that we all dream about as children. Crosby does have just one Conn Smythe Award as hockey's playoff MVP. He just got that. And all of this comes as a big surprise considering he had just three goals in the first 20 games of the season, at which point the Penguins fired their coach. Zooming out a little bit more, he missed almost a season and a half between 2010 and 2012 due to concussions, which led him to speak out about what he termed questionable blindside hits and led the NHL to reexamine its rules on hits to the head. Joining us now to talk about the Penguins and Crosby and in a minute, the death of Mr. Hockey Gordie Howe. It's Bruce Arthur, a sports columnist for the Toronto Star. Hey, Bruce. Good morning. Good morning. And Sidney Crosby was the star of these playoffs, though he did not score in the Stanley Cup 
finals. And I'm just curious what you think this does for him reputationally. Uh, my recollection is that there was much talk a few years ago from the uh, dumber segments of our population about him not being tough. Mm-hmm. And there's some questions about his place in the hockey firmament. And has this changed opinions about him and his status in the league? I mean, it probably shouldn't because Crosby was great in these playoffs, even though the numbers didn't reflect it. But the funny thing with Sidney Crosby is ever since he came into the league, and he came into the league in 2005, he's been the best, more or less, he was the best player in hockey. And he's kind of stayed that way. He's gotten injured. There have been detours. Some really bad luck on his part. That's just hockey. But he's been the best player of his generation, and he's been consistently the best player of his generation. And a lot of people have almost gotten bored with that. They've almost gotten to the point where they're, they're waiting for someone to take that mantle away. I still remember when they lost to Philadelphia in 2012. It was that wild WWE-style series. It was out of control. Claude Giroux went right after Crosby. And after that series, people said, well, maybe Claude Giroux is the best player in hockey. And that's happened a few different times. I mean, this year, Patrick King was the best player in hockey. And then Sidney Crosby, after a first two months where he really wasn't Sidney Crosby at all, became probably, again, the best player in hockey. I don't know if we take him for granted. I think some people don't like him just because he's been so good. People want him to fail. I don't know. Hockey loves to drag its stars down more than any other sport, I find. But what this does is it gives him as many cups as Mario and Yager did with him and him and Evgeny Malkin have now won as many cups. It gives him a consmite, which he didn't have the last time. Malkin was the best player the last time. And what Sydney is, He's one of those generational guys. Like in Canada, we kind of go Howe to Gretzky to Lemieux to Crosby. And now it gives him that much more to prove it. Whereas before, it was a, just a little hurt to make the argument with someone who wasn't really paying attention. And this was a pretty impressive run through the playoffs. The Penguins were not favored to come out of the Eastern Conference before the playoffs began. And you know, hockey playoffs, of course, there's some vagaries, there's a lot of bouncing pucks, it's some randomness, but they beat the New York Rangers, the Washington Capitals, and the Tampa Bay Lightning, three very, very good hockey teams, right? And they they were way better than the Sharks. And this was, to me, was the interesting part. Is, I mean, the Rangers had some problems, and they made Henrik Lundqvist look really bad. And then Washington was the best team in the regular season. And, they, and Washington at times in that series looked a lot better than Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh kind of just wrested control of it. The San Jose, though, when you come out of the West, the assumption is that you're better than the teams coming out of the East. They play big boy hockey in the West. He's my friend Pierre Lebrun's uh, phrase. And, I mean, San Jose had to really fight to get out. And when you got to the final, what you saw is P- Pittsburgh was way better. They were way faster. They were way better with the puck. They put so much pressure on San Jose that it made them look slow, made them look indecisive. This is a really good team. Pittsburgh was by far the best team in that final. The fact that it went to six games just tells you, like you said, the vagaries of hockey, right? Like Martin Jones stole game five from Pittsburgh. They should have won that game. And you could see in game six, they, they were the better team. This Pittsburgh team, though, in December was a mess. Like they wanted to, in Toronto, everyone's talking about the redemption of Phil Kessel. In December, they wanted to kill Phil Kessel in Pittsburgh. A month ago, or three weeks ago, people in Pittsburgh were criticizing Sidney Crosby's lack of leadership because he wasn't scoring enough goals. This Pittsburgh team was not a straight-line team, but once they changed coaches, they changed to Mike Sullivan. And I'd love to know exactly what he did system-wise with this team, other than just get them to play faster. But this Pittsburgh team was a monster. 
after a, a couple weeks after he took over, they clicked. Because there's no other team in hockey that could have three guys on three lines that can drive possession, Crosby, Malkin, and Phil Kessel. And, I mean, they earned the Stanley Cup. A lot of the time, when the Stanley Cup's over, it's a small margin quite often. Like last year at the end of the six games between Chicago and Tampa Bay, I asked Anton Strahlman of Tampa, what was the difference in this series where there was only one two-goal lead the whole series? And he looked at me and went, luck. And I was like, oh, that's, that's got to be a hard thing to live with. This wasn't lucky. Pittsburgh was just really good. Yeah, and if you look at the Corsi scores and the Fenwick scores, by the way, these stats are so much more predictive in the NHL, and maybe we think they wouldn't be. Like, if you don't know advanced stats, you might say to yourself, oh, wouldn't baseball have their extremely predictive stats, and there's one that correlates to winning? It doesn't work that way, but the the teams with the best Corsi score, which is just basically counting shots on goal, are, do extremely well, and after Sullivan... Uh, took over they had pretty much the best Corsi score and I guess my question mm-hmm. is why like how do you tell okay we know that coaching can do some things but here are some things we don't expect coaching to do tell Miguel Cabrera to hit for a high average tell Clayton Kershaw to strike out people and then when it comes to Sidney Crosby like I understand how a coach can uh, improve an overall team but how can a coach make Sidney Crosby better that's my question a lot of it is context. Like the whole thing with Corsi, Corsi is hilarious in that, that that it's considered an advanced stat tells you a lot about where mathematically hockey was. The same way that walks being this super secret thing. We look back and we go, that was a secret thing. Getting guys on base was, that was your big advantage. Yeah, but people still dispute it. People just say, oh, you can't go by shots. Yeah, it has a lot to do with winning. It's amazing. Like the, the whole notion of advanced stats, three is worth more than two in basketball. What an incredible advanced stat this is. Um, and, and this is what hockey is. Throwing the puck at the other team's net is better than having it thrown at your net. Like just, And all of this stuff makes sense when you think about it. And Corsi has become quite predictive, not purely predictive, but the more shots you send at the other guy's net, especially in the playoffs, the way hockey's played now, the more chance it hits a skate, a stick, a shin, a butt, whatever you want, on the way in and redirects in. With Crosby, I remember talking to people early in the season, and they said, you know, Sidney Crosby didn't just forget how to play hockey. Like I know he looks better now. He, did. I think part of it might have been that he, they had trouble at the back end of that team, and getting the puck from defensemen to forwards was an issue. So he had problems with that. They were trying to force him with different players. He's a tough player to play with because he's so unpredictable because he sees things other guys don't. We saw that in Canada with the Olympic team in that it was surprisingly hard to find people who could play with Sidney Crosby. But I think, part, I think part of it was him, but I think part of it is just in hockey, coaches can have an enormous effect on your team, and mostly it's depressive. You get some coaches whose systems just wind up, they wind up being too conservative, they wind up being kind of geared towards defense rather than skating the puck the other way. Everyone's now trying to play puck possession. The Penguins just have better players to do it. The funny thing is, if you talk to San Jose guys in this series, they talked about this Pittsburgh team as they cheat. They blow the zone. They, they, they're, they, they look for stretch passes more than a lot of teams do because they've got the skill to do it. And again, this is a team without a great back end, but Pittsburgh guys are allowed to fly if their defense gets full control. A lot of teams don't play that way. At least they don't play well that way. And Crosby just, I think he was put in a better context by his coach in terms of where he got the puck and when he got the puck and who he was playing with. And it's funny because, like, a coach can't really hold LeBron James down that much. It's a lot easier to 
to hold down your offensive players in hockey because hockey does a lot of the holding down for you. On Friday, you wrote an obituary for Gordie Howe, who is known as Mr. Hockey. He died at 88. He played for the Detroit Red Wings for many years, came back and scored his last NHL goal when he was 52 for the Whalers, at which point he was playing with his sons. This wasn't like a Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Sr. thing, where it was like, he played with his sons for years. <laughs> it wasn't just like for, for a little while. So he is this Paul Bunyan-esque figure, and that's not uh, – you know, just metaphorical. Like if you look at a shirtless photo of this guy fishing, it yeah. looks like it's not a real person. Like how huge he was just could not have been standard for his time. And so he's a guy who was a legend in his time. The legend seems to have only grown and he seems to embody basically everything that hockey wants to think of itself as being. Yeah. I mean, it's funny actually that remember, remember the Simpsons used Gordie Howe? when Bart sends her the card, the picture of Gordie Howe as, as an imagined suitor, um, it, yep. it's a little bit appropriate because Gordie Howe seemed made up. He seemed like a guy who was written as the Canadian hockey player. He was born in Floral, Saskatchewan. He only gets skates because some neighbors who are hurting because of the depression collect some th- stuff around the house, throw it in the gunny sack, and there happen to be two skates in there because they're looking for a couple dimes from the Howe family. He, he skates on one skate, his sister skates on the other, all that stuff. Um, he, the only reason he's so strong is because his back is a, has a problem, so he has to do all these pull-ups. And he becomes the best hockey player of his era in a really interesting way. The whole notion of the, the Gordie Howe hat trick, by the way, Gordie Howe, I think, has 22 recorded fights over however many years he played, over 20 years. Um, he almost never fought because people didn't want to fight. But what Gordie Howe became, was this, he became an idea. Because, like, what is hockey, or what has hockey been? If you wanted to distill it down, a goal and assist in a fight, that's a pretty good distillation of what people thought hockey was for a very long time. And how Gordie Howe was, this mean son of a bitch on the ice. This guy who, who would absolutely hurt you if you did anything to embarrass him. Or, and embarrassing included meaning taking the puck from him. That was an injustice to Gordie Howe. He was mean and off the ice was like the nicest man in the world. And I find this, this is kind of peculiar to Canadians a little bit and Americans have a similar thing in a different way. We like to tell ourselves who we are. We like to tell ourselves stories that represent what we think Canada is. And Gordie Howe was one of those stories, a really decent and honorable gentleman who, when it was called for, could be as tough as anybody in the world. And we're not always as good as Gordy. We're not always as tough as Gordy. Of course we're not. Um, in this country, we, we turn hockey players into, into saints, whether they deserve it or not. Gordy, at least off the ice, absolutely deserved it. He's one of those pieces of Canada that if we had not had him, we would have written him. We would have found another way, right? It was more than the toughness on the ice, of course, too, Bruce, because Howe was the most prolific scorer by far. Hockey hadn't seen anybody mm-hmm. like Gordie Howe. Some of that was longevity. He retired mm-hmm. from the NHL with 801 goals, and then he piled on yeah. how many more in the World Hockey Association when he, when he came out of retirement. He first retired in 1972 and went into the Detroit Red Wings management. They didn't give him enough to do. He got bored. His sons were old enough to start playing professionally, so he decided to join them. And he went and played in the WHA in Houston and then basically saved hockey in Hartford, Connecticut, 
and made the Hartford Whalers a viable franchise that ended up being in the NHL for a long time. But he was so far ahead of everybody that his scoring records were perceived upon his retirement as unbreakable. Well, and he was stronger than most people. He could really skate. He could defend. He could shoot. He could pass. He could do all those things. But again, go back to go, the way Gordy used to tell stories. Is they were always, whatever he'd deliver an elbow or anything like that, it would be the other half of something that someone had done wrong. And again, that included stealing the puck from him. How many goals did Gordy Howe score? Because people were afraid to steal the puck from him because he'd come back and concuss you for that. Um, that was just, that was the error, right? But he was absolutely the best player anyone had ever seen. I mean, Maurice Richard would be kind of the competition, maybe Jean Beliveau. But how was, he was just a different category. Who plays until their, into their 50s? 52. Who plays at, at, a, at a reasonable level into their 50s? He scored 15 goals in his last year in the NHL when he was 51 and then turned 52. He was still a player. And, and again, this is not something that happens. Like, we only get a, like one guy like this every couple generations who can dominate the game to that level. But the way Gordy did it, was very emblematic of when he grew up, right? Like he grew up back, he grew up in the depression. He grew up when hockey was a, a, a far more savage game than it is now. And he was a guy who was kind of forward in time in terms of physically, in terms of how he played. And that's how those greats happen is that it's, it's like they came from the future, except Gordy was very much planted in his own time. So what about the psychology? I mean, he's a little Jordan-esque in that he there were all these perceived insults that were just playing the game, like you talked about, stealing a puck. Was he similarly mm-hmm. driven slash sociopathic in other walks of life like Jordan is? No, that's the thing is that Jordan on and off the ice, or on and off the court, rather, is kind of, that's Michael Jordan, right? Like, Gordy Howe, it was like a switch got flipped. Gordy off the ice was, I mean, it, it, we talked about this a little bit in Canada, it's kind of ironic that he died the same day of Muhammad Ali's funeral because they were both people who had this immense fame and this kind of immense impact on their sport and who always had time for people. Like, Gordy had time for people. And one of the ways that Wayne Gretzky learned to deal with his hyper fame is that his dad would say, look at Mr. Howe and look how he deals with people, how he shakes their hand, how he looks them in the eye, how he signs a legible autograph, little things like that. And... In hockey, of the best players we've had, and uh, let's go Howe, Gretzky, Crosby, all of them have been unfailingly decent, right? Like, it's not easy for that to kind of happen when guys are that famous, have that much responsibility and power, which you do if you're a hockey player in Canada. There's also no coincidence, by the way, that none of them live full-time in Canada. <laughs> um, but Gordie Howe was just, he was remembered as being someone that people loved, really, really loved, and who had time for people back. And that, to me, is, there's two flip sides to him. On the ice, again, you'd never want to play against Gordie Howe. And off the ice, there's hardly anyone you'd rather spend time with. I would recommend that everyone watch, and we'll link to it on our show page, the video of his last goal in the NHL. Because even though he did play until he was 52 and, like, you know, go through all of these different eras in hockey, you can still watch this video, which I think is from, what is it, 1980? Mm-hmm. 1980. And he's out there not wearing a helmet. Um, Mm -hmm. Hockey from like 30 years ago, it looks to me just the the difference between the modern era and, you know, that period. It just seems 
so much more stark than in other sports. It mm-hmm. just the players are. I mean, I don't mean to disparage Gordy has abilities at all, but the players are just moving more slowly. The game just looks totally different. Again, he's not wearing a helmet. It just really yeah, looks the goalie like goalie pads are a huge difference. It just looks so strange to like our modern eyes to watch this. Well, it, it almost feels like hockey got professionalized in the 1990s, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to disparage anyone who came before. But watch goalies in the 1980s, and you're, you're, you can watch for five minutes and not be sure whether they can really fully bend their knees because <laughs> they try for the straight-legged kick save, right? Like they might as well be wearing like Forrest Gump braces. The way goalies used to play was incredible. You used to be able to score on the rush with a shot along the ice. That could go in. And now there's no chance that ever goes in. And then the, the amount of nutritional training, the amount of personal training, the, amount, the, the age at which kids go, the mechanism that's been built up. Hockey now, there aren't many slow players left. Like the last slow guy to leave the NHL is going to happen in the next four or five years. John Scott. Because you just can't anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's too fast. All guys can do is kind of dominate their error, but it's the same thing. Wilt Chamberlain was this enormous, colossal. He was like four inches taller than Bill Russell, and he was bigger and stronger than everybody else. And if you took him and put him in the 1990s, how does he fare against Patrick Ewing and David Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon and all the other guys who were similar, at least to him, in size, right? And Gordy, back then, you the game, they, they went as fast as they could. They went as fast as their skates allowed. They shot as hard as their sticks allowed. And they scored as often as the goalies allowed. Um, but hockey is, it, it's almost unrecognizable from the 1980s. And the problem is now everyone's super fast. There's a lot of skill and almost nobody can score. So that's the kind of paradox is that as hockey's gotten more professionalized, I, had, I, I was talking to an NHL official before game five of the Stanley Cup final. We're talking about how they were going to bring in smaller goalie pads next year. He said, all we got to do now is ban coaches. <laughs> so one last quick question, Bruce. What would Gordie Howe look like in the modern NHL? It's harder to say because he couldn't get away with all that stuff, right? But I still think it, if you just took him kind of unchanged and plopped him into the system when he was young, well, one, my friend Rory McGregor from the Golden Mail made this point. If you took him and put him in the modern era, Gordie Howe never would have played hockey. He would have been a really poor kid who wouldn't have been able to afford skates and sticks and all the equipment, right? It's becoming a rich person sport, and Gordy grew up real poor. But let's say that Gordy got discovered, let's say that Gordy got sponsored, and he played. He would have been great. Because I, I, I don't think that anyone who achieved at the level that a generational guy like Gordy Howe achieved, I think he, ha- he would have had the internal engine to figure it out. I think he would have been a power forward, right? He would have been just a great power forward who was more physical than anybody else, who is as skilled as anybody, and who could kind of do it all. I mean, maybe, maybe close to Eric Lindros in his prime, maybe a little bit different, but that kind of overwhelming physicality and skill, he still would have had that. The problem is everyone else would have been better and faster and in a different context. Um, I still think he would have been a generational player. I don't know if he could have been as far above his peers because, again, the ability to intimidate them would have been markedly different. Bruce Arthur is a sports columnist for the Toronto Star. Thank you so much, Bruce. My pleasure, guys. Now it is time for After Balls. And Bruce Arthur mentioned the Gordie Howe hat trick, which is goal and assist in a fight. Right, Stefan? I'm going to be talking about it in just a few minutes. And you did an After Ball a couple of years ago about Gordie's fight with Lou Fontanato. And I think 
he was either a hockey player or the owner of an Italian delicatessen or both. But I love the name Lou Fontanato. Mike, what is your Lou Fontanato? In this space before, I've talked about the tradition of the horrible baseball segue during radio ads. Sam Horn and Matt Shoemaker, both major league players, and announcers will shoehorn any sponsor's reference in, no matter how discordant, into a product placement. Yes, yes, yes. A call to the pen should, in fact, be sponsored by Verizon or Pac Bell or tonight's airing on Turner Movie Classics of Call Northside 777. Jimmy Stewart as reporter PJ McNeil and Lee J. Cobb as his hard bitten editor. And Ray's hitter sure we're biting hard on Nishak's breaking ball today. See, it's acceptable. That's all acceptable. That's all fine. As is, the Twins offense is heating up and Friedrich air conditioners will help you in these summer months or Jose Altuve sparking the Astros offense and AC Delco's shocks and struts can do the same for your Mark Melanson, such a dependable reliever. And dependable relief is Gas X. When that three bean salad repeats like a Kyle Schwaber multi home run game, it's Gas X. I accept all those. But for years, the Mets, my team, had a rather curious ad. You might say it was trying a little too hard. You might say it was just out of place on an MLB broadcast. You might say, why are these people buying radio ads at all? Here now from earlier this season. Mets with a three to one lead on to protect it. As Hansel Robles, just as Norman Seabrook and the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association protect and patrol the toughest precincts in New York, the jails, Coba, New York's boldest. I suppose a positive media impression could help the bottom line of the prison guards, right? Come next contract negotiations, the public will associate the prison guards with all that is righteous and noble and a one-run lead in the eighth, I don't know. Maybe having the president of the prison guard's name be as familiar as Mets reliever Jerry's familia, maybe that makes sense because I actually can't explain it. I don't know why it makes sense, but now it's all making sense. But now it all makes sense because we recently learned that when it came to magical Mets media moments, Norman Seabrook was a giver, but in so many other walks of life, he was simply on the take. For 21 years, Norman Seabrook has been president of New York's Correction Officers Benevolent Association, or COBA. Today, he appeared in federal court on the other side of the law, facing corruption charges, led here, investigators say, by an abuse of power and greed. In November 2013, Seabrook complained to a friend about working hard to invest COBA's money without any personal financial benefit, asserting that it was time that Norman Seabrook got paid. Some further details. After putting $20 million of union funds in a high-risk hedge fund, according to the criminal complaint filed by the Office of the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecutors say he was given $60,000, delivered in a Salvatore Farragamo bag, one of his favorite luxury brands. So I was keen to see if the Mets would still puff up the role of Mr. Seabrook in leading the jailers of New York in that toughest of precincts, the jails. So here's the tape. This is the first Mets game after Seabrook was arrested. I was listening to the part where they normally plug Coba, where they normally plug the jails. I hope they still give Norm a shout out. I hope they talk about New York's boldest. Here it comes. So Familia coming on to protect the lead, just as the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association protect and patrol the toughest precincts in New York, the jails. Coba, New York's boldest. 
Oh no, no Norman. See no Seabrook, say no Seabrook. They would broke no Seabrook as the Mets announcers climb the ladder and set him down. And he has not been on a Mets broadcast since. Still, there are other references to the corrections officers, mentions big and small. Kelly Johnson on deck offering protection in the lineup, just as the corrections officers, benevolent association, protected patrol, the toughest precincts in New York, the jails, Coba, New York's boldest. But there has been no full-blown shout-out to the disgraced former union head who wants to keep a prisoner from testifying against one of his officers, quote, single-handedly shut down the city court system by directing his members in a work stoppage that halted almost all the buses that ferry inmates to and from courts. But why? Why no ads, I say? This is an opportunity for the Mets announcers to really lean in. And now we've got Granderson on third, Conforto on second, Cespedes walking on his way to first. You could say that the bags are stuffed. Just like Norman Seabrook of the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association once stuffed $60,000 in cash into a Salvador Ferragamo bag. It was a clear RBI, riches before integrity, situation for the president of COBA, New York's ballsiest. Or how about... And with runners-on manager Terry Collins really walking a ledge here by leaving reliever Addison Reed in. Just like Norman Seabrook is allegedly guilty of honest services fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. You know, according to the New York Times, Norman Seabrook once had one of his corrections officers dress as a cartoon character to mock a commissioner who was leading a tour of Rikers, which is exactly what Mr. Met's job is whenever Chipper Jones came to Shea. Fine Mets tradition. Now, I know it's only wishful thinking to hope that they'll do this, to hope that the Mets announcers will still find time to honor the union chief. Maybe such a time can be when catcher Kevin Pawecki skillfully blocks a Jacob deGrom fastball in the dirt. Just like Norman Seabrook blocked prison reform on notoriously harsh Rikers Island. Standing in the way of ending solitary confinement, in effect, stranding the runner in a cell. Alone, in contravention to the best human rights practices, confined to a dank cell, just as young hurler Steven Matz is confined to a pitch count of 105 in his starts. You know, Mets second baseman Neil Walker, ironically, has a walk rate of below 10%, not much of a walker, sort of like the president of the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association, is no longer president, is in no way connect, did not act out of benevolence, and associates with a dirty real estate developer now cooperating with authorities. Norman Seabrook, as union head, as respectable member of society, and as a mainstay on Mets broadcasts, he's out of here! Stefan, what is your Lou Fontanato? All right, the Gordie Howe hat trick, goal assist fight. In the same game, just about every obituary mentioned the GHHT. There have been pieces noting that irony... Gordie Howe himself only had, as Bruce Arthur pointed out, two Gordie Howe hat tricks in his career and just 22 fights overall. He played hockey from 1946 to 1980. Gordie Howe's first Gordie Howe hat trick was on October 11th, 1953 in Detroit against the Maple Leafs. Howe assisted on a goal by Red Kelly at 11:19 of the first period. He scored at 18:02 of the first period, and he was sent to the sin bin 30 seconds later for fighting Fernie Flamen. Bernie Flamen. The NHL posted these score sheets from that game on Twitter after Howe's death, and they are pretty cool. Howe's second GHHT was later that season on March 21st, 1954, again against the Maple Leafs. 
He scored the opening goal, assisted Ted Lindsay twice, and fought an old nemesis, Ted Teeter Kennedy, Teeter, after nearly slicing off his ear with a high stick. There might have been some payback there. Teeter was responsible, or at least involved in the 1950 incident, in which Howe flew headfirst into the boards and nearly died. The Gordie Howe hat trick then is obviously less about the frequency with which Howe achieved one than with how Howe is viewed as a player, supremely skilled in the two measurable offensive statistics, but tough enough to handle his own business on the ice. The Hockey News began tracking it as a stat in 1996. Brendan Shanahan for a while was credited as the career GHHT leader with 17. Then Rick Tockett was found to have 18. Then the Society for International Hockey Research determined that Hall of Famer Stan Makita, who played from 1959 to 1980, had 22, and the aforementioned Ted Lindsay had 19. There were seven GHHTs this past season, but no double GHHTs. You know what a double GHHT is, Josh? It's a GHHT doubled. It is. When two players score, assist, and fight each other in the same game. Oh. The phrase has inspired t-shirts, Gordie Howe hat trick since 1953, and it was the title of a 2008 art installation in Toronto. I'll read the description. Reclaimed metal hockey figurines are strategically arranged to address questions associated with play and competition. The nostalgic piece highlights the popular Canadian pastime and allows the viewer to reflect on the integral role that play has in the development of character and gender roles. But who coined the phrase Gordie Howe hat trick? I searched several news databases containing thousands of publications, American and Canadian. The first published mention of GHHT is in the St. Paul Pioneer Press on December 17th, 1989, in which Minnesota North Star Center Dave Gagne is quoted about his teammate Basil McRae. Quote, Basil got a Gordie Howe hat trick, Dave Gagne said. He scored a goal, got an assist on the winner, and got into a fight. A hell of a fight. The Toronto Star the same day noted that McRae, quote, had what his mates call a Gordie Howe hat trick, a fight, a goal, and an assist. This one is interesting because it sort of confirms that the phrase wasn't common at the time because a Canadian newspaper saw the need to define it and attribute usage to McRae's teammates. It wasn't common hockey lingo. I'm a reporter, so I got in touch with Dave Gagne. He is a partner in the Orr Hockey Group Agency. He told me he was surprised to hear that he might have been the first person quoted in print saying Gordie Howe hat trick. Alas, though, Gagne was too modest. Hockey players are so damn modest. Too modest to claim ownership of the phrase. Quote, I'm pretty sure I can't take credit for it, he told me over the phone. He said he doesn't remember where he had heard it before, but he had heard it before. So where did Gordie Howe hat trick come from? Probably some junior hockey locker room bubbled up from there. Brendan Shanahan, now the president of the Maple Leafs, told NHL.com in 2010 that he had never heard the term, quote, until I'd had quite a few of them. I'm going to say he had had three of them exactly when he heard of it because Shanahan was quoted in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in December 1991 after getting one, a Gordie Howe hat trick. Shanahan gushed a goal, an assist, and a fight. In that 2010 story, Shanahan said players are more aware of the Gordie Howe hat trick these days. If you get two of the three, someone might say, hey, all you need is a goal. He said, I think it happens more if you have a fight and one of those other two things. Nobody ever says, hey, you've got a goal and an assist. Go get in a fight. That's quite an observation from Brendan Shanahan. No wonder he has risen to become president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Josh, what's your Lou Fontanato? 
It is college baseball playoff time, which means uh, the annual right of abusing pitchers and regionals, super regionals in the College World Series. And Keith Law on Twitter is your clearinghouse for all of the latest pitcher pitch count abuse uh, news. There's a guy named Andrew Cabezas. He's a freshman pitcher from Miami. He pitched two and a thirds innings in relief. Then 24 hours later, he started a game for the Hurricanes against Boston College. Keith Law noted that Arizona has been abusing pitchers all year. There was a pitcher named Dahlbeck who threw 126 pitches and went out to pitch the bottom of the ninth. Another guy from Arizona, Nathan Bannister, threw 198 pitches in a single weekend. And it goes on like this. He also talked about Mark Marquis of Stanford. 2017 will be his last year. And Keith Law described him as a serial overuser of arms. So this became big news to the extent that anything in college baseball was big news in 2009. Do you remember that really long game uh, with Texas and Boston College in a regional? There was a pitcher named Austin Wood. He threw 169 pitches, and then Boston College had a reliever who also threw over 100 innings. Wood threw 13 innings in relief, 46 batters faced. So the way the sport is structured, the way its postseason is structured, teams and college baseball coaches are encouraged to abuse their pitchers' arms because you have these regionals. It starts off as a four-team regional double elimination, and it's played over a single weekend. Sometimes there's rainouts. And so you get these games back to back to back, and these staffs on college baseball teams, you maybe only have like a couple really good pitchers. And so you start a guy, then maybe you bring him in in relief, and then the next weekend you have a super regional, and then the next weekend the College World Series. And so these guys go out again and again and again, and they want to win these games for their teams. This is the playoffs, and you know you only have one chance to win a college baseball championship. And so all of the incentives here are aligned in the exact wrong direction. There's a lot that we don't know about arms and pitcher health, but one thing that I think is generally accepted wisdom is that you don't want to have a guy throw 200 pitches in a single weekend. There are these conventions, and some of them are scientific, and some of them are just best guesses. But, you know, it's around 100 pitches in a major league game. And if you're younger, maybe fewer. But this guy, Boyd Nation, has, you know, pitch count watch. And this thing hasn't been updated in a while. But, you know, 136 pitches for a guy from CSU Bakerfield, 145 pitches for a guy from... Central Arkansas, 152 for Alcorn State, you know, and in the minor leagues and in the and in the major leagues, teams have the incentive to try to keep these guys healthy, and there's money involved, and there are contracts, and so if a guy gets hurt, you're hurting your team. In college baseball, a guy's around for you know a couple years. And then he leaves. And the way that the Major League Baseball draft works, I think it's the smartest, most rational system there is. You can go pro after high school. Or if you go to college, you have to stay for three years before you're eligible again. That makes sense to me. But it's that interregnum period, and especially for pitchers. And pitchers are the most fragile athletes that we have. They're being put under the care of these coaches that, you know, and Keith Law and other people have kind of cataloged. Rice's Wayne Graham. He had three starters drafted in the first eight pitch 
picks in 2004, Philip Humber, Jeff Neiman, and Wade Townsend, and all three of them had shoulder injuries after that, that there are certain programs that are known for not particularly caring about a pitcher's health. And so I think the reason that this continues to happen is that nobody really cares about college baseball. It doesn't get that much coverage. You know, when the most kind of attention and notoriety comes from occasional tweets from Keith Law, there's like nobody else who's writing about this or who really seems to care about it. And it only becomes more of a national story when a guy throws 170 pitches in 13 innings seven years ago. And so this is something that I think is worth people paying attention to. The games are on ESPN. and All the time. Yeah. And so let's talk about it more. We just did. Stop, stop abusing the arms, college baseball coaches. All right. We love your feedback. And what we talked about today, you can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And you can leave us a comment and a rating. It helps us. We haven't gotten uh, that many comments and ratings recently. So I'm going to extend our credits even several sentences longer to urge you to comment and rate. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.